Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is McGee Young. Welcome to episode two of the Watt Carbon podcast, along with Kelly Littleton, my co-host, uh, who is uh, coming to us from Missoula, Montana, and also a bit under the weather, which in Missoula this time of the year is really bad, which means, yes, you guessed it, she has COVID. Um, cough, cough once to say hello, cough twice, to say, um, you know, bye, goodbye. <laughs> Otherwise, do the best you can, Kelly. Thanks for, for toughing it out today with us. Um, yeah, bear with a, a few coughing fits, but I'm definitely excited to, to chat today. We're, um, we're doing these first few, few episodes of the Watt Carbon podcast, first of all, to figure out how to podcast well. Um, second of all, as a chance to get to know some members of the team, we kicked off the series last time with me interviewing Kelly. And today we're really excited to welcome one of our software engineers, Steve Suffian, uh, to the podcast. We'll, we'll get to him in a minute, but Kelly, is there, you know, we're off, we're climate nerds. We, you know, follow this stuff quite, quite deeply. Is there anything in the last, you know, week or so that you've been um, seeing that's, that's caught your eye that's, that's, you know, kind of got you excited or interested? Yeah, so I have a kind of a two-pronged answer to that question. Um, just in, in general, I've been reading a lot about some really cool design build firms um, that are doing prefab modular net zero construction, and that's their whole business model. And um, just they're kind of exploding everywhere um, as an answer to the affordable housing crisis and building smaller and um they're just, it's kind of this exponential growth, growth of a kind of niche industry that I'm following closely um, and really excited about. But one thing that is interesting is that they're still kind of caught up in this net zero energy definition and not um, net zero carbon, but kind of looking at that as that kind of moves forward and um, with all the regulations coming down with IRA and how that's going to evolve into building codes. So um, that's kind of the the nerdy buildings stuff I've been reading. And then I also, this came, a colleague of mine uh, forwarded me this kind of funny article that I thought it was a joke um, at first. And it's a BBC article, so it's hopefully legit. But uh, the, the headline is, Bill Gates has invested in a climate tech startup in Australia to reduce methane emissions from cow burps. And I, like, I know methane... It, emissions from livestock are a real thing, but just to see that article headline come across my inbox was just like, whoa, this is real. Um, and it was from the BBC. And what's funny is I think it's also like a cow fart problem, but I think the BBC was too polite to say, cause they're British to call out those. But anyway, um, it's just kind of a wild and wacky, but I guess real thing. And um, yeah. I, I've heard that, that farts are, are also bad but it is the burp because they have these they have a four chambered stomach and so they have to belch up you know the pre-digested and it goes into the next chamber of the stomach and then it you know comes back up and goes in the next chamber and whatnot and so that process is um apparently uh, produces a lot of methane it also is um really interesting how much water uh mm -hmm. it takes to to grow uh cows or to, to raise cattle and and you know, turn those into to hamburgers or, or milk mm -hmm. it's sort of this astonishingly high amount of gallons 
that go into like a pound of beef, uh, for example. So between the two of those, it's, you know, this is why a lot of people are saying we've got to go vegetarian. Are you a vegetarian, Kelly? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Sorry, what that's would it take? Is there, is there any limit to say like, okay, now this, you've convinced me that I'll become a vegetarian? I mean, I think honestly, I think I could be a vegetarian. I think given like an impossible burger, I think they're coming up with some really good, it's just a mental thing. It's a mental switch. Uh oh, we've got some shakes of the head, but <laughs> uh, it'd be, it'd, I'd be hard pressed to maybe a pescatarian. I could probably, sure. yeah, do that. But I also thought it was hilarious that they're not hilarious, but kind of cre creative solution that they're attacking this problem with feeding the cows algae to help the digestion. I was like, whoa, science. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> algae apparently does a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. Algae's like, yeah, exactly. Super uh, food. I, I, I was, re I was watching this, uh, war happily erupts over speaking of hamburgers over whether or not we're going to be able to use gas stoves in the future and how apparently the the second amendment also protects you your right to a gas stove i didn't realize that this was what? this was true it's like we nobody really knew but we have the right to bear arms and to cook on gas in the second amendment i at least I that's what i heard isn't it <laughs> My uh, have... meter is not as <laughs> you can't tell. Try my try my gas stove from my cold dead hands. I think is what they're saying now. I, it's it's a remarkable. I it's funny because I don't know. I got a stove about five years ago, and I you know like it never occurred to me that it would be bad, right? Or that like you know unhealthy, um, much less undesirable, um, and. I'm sort of like, I don't know, I like to think I'm hip to this, you know, to this kind of thing. And, um, but it was, you know, cooking with natural gas, it was, it's clean. It's, you know, like it's, it's everybody says it's better. And then it just kind of goes to show you how deeply embedded some of these practices are in our lives that we just kind of, then we tend to hold sacred, but for like, maybe not really any good reason other than like, we've been brainwashed maybe. Totally. There was the whole in the 50s, there was that whole like cooking with gas jingle that is now people just say, say to say like you're you're going you're doing well, you're cooking with gas. And that's embedded in our brains because of this cultural push that's paid for by all the powers that be. But yeah, yeah, totally. It's kind of this uh, cultural integration and un unweaving that in a way that's doesn't terrify people that's digestible. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I, lest we get accused of wanting to take away both their hamburgers and their gas stoves, we better move on to more less, uh, co less controversial topics like taking away their uh, taking away their heaters, <laughs> taking away their furnaces. Um, how about how about paying you to give up your gas furnace? Now that would you know, that better paying your contractor for convincing you to give up your your gas furnace, and then nobody's taking anything away from anybody. Uh, we're in fact making an investment in our future uh, to make sure that we have a planet that our kids and our kids' kids can live on. That seems like maybe a better message to send to people to me. Yeah, you're making you're making a lot of sense, McGee. Uh -oh. <laughs> well, on that note, we better quit while we're ahead and welcome our guest uh, today, our software engineer extraordinaire, 
Dr. Steve Stuffian, who is joining us from the great city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Steve. Hey, how's it going? It's going fantastic. This podcast is going to be tape delayed, so um, you're going to be listening to this. I don't know. Tape delayed is probably not the right word to use. Uh, whatever. Stream delayed. Stream delayed. <laughs> Uh, but we are recording this on the day that we announced um, our seed round uh, for our company and our roadmap for a net zero energy market. So it's a big day for us at, at Watt Carbon. And and Steve, we're, we're all kind of counting on you and the engineering team to actually deliver, uh, you know, on the on the promises that we're making. As a as a software engineer, when you have when you have you know you're part of a company in which, you know, there's these kind of big ambitious, you know, goals are set and, you know, kind of vague promises for functionality, you know, are, are described. Does that strike fear into your heart? Does that make you just sort of like want to die a little bit inside and go, Oh my God, there's, you know, how on earth are we possibly like, how does that tell me what that feels like as a, as an engineer? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's exciting at first because there's some degree of, of sort of like a single direction that, you know, like we know where we're trying to go and, th and that part's really exciting. Um, but then that lasts for about five seconds before uh, there's just the fear of like, oh, great, how how are we gonna do this? And then, and then you get into the details and then you realize that there's some, you know, hypocrisy between two of the things that we were saying we were trying to do when you get into actually how you do it and all this stuff. Then that gets to the fun part where then you kind of crank through all the difficulties and end up on the other side with an actual thing that's hopefully been well thought out. <laughs> Partly that it's it's life without a roadmap, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you have startups are, are organizations designed to find new business models and big companies are designed to execute on known business models. And so the trade-off there is like the unknown versus unknown, which may not be all that interesting or maybe more more routine. But you've been doing this basically since coming out of school as you joined, you doing startups. Is that a thing that you had thought you would be doing when you went to grad school? You think I wanna go work in like very unstable, you know, companies with no clear roadmap and like see what I can do or did that just kind of naturally happen? That's a bit more specific than where I was thinking, I think. I mean, honestly, I, I assumed I didn't want to work at companies at all. So I was, I, I wanted to just kind of like, you know, do things to help people and, and save the world and that sort of vibe. Um, and then I remember the moment when I, and so at first I was like, Oh, academia, be cool, stay in school. I'll just kind of like, everyone told me that. And so I'll just keep going, got through to the, I was second year of my PhD and I was in a fellowship and, uh, that I remember the moment somebody explained the post PhD life and like applying to professorships and all of that sort of world. And that's when I was like, Oh wait, that sounds worse than working at a company. Um, but then I've been lucky to sort of, I think I've just been lucky to sort of kind of wiggle my way into small companies that are doing cool things. Um, and yeah, I think the best part is really just being able to work on a bunch of different stuff rather than kind of getting too pigeonholed into a single task. Definitely. What was, do you remember the first line of code that you ever wrote in your life? 
Yeah, if you count LabVIEW, I don't know if that counts. That's it's, it's basically this code where you have little boxes and you have to like kind of wire things to it. It looked like, because it looked like you were wiring things to each other, a chem, chemical engineering professor at Penn State thought that that was what electrical engineering was. And I was looking for research. I was like a sophomore. So he was like, you're, yeah, you know how to do that, right? And I was like, sure, whatever. And so that was kind of the first coding, but you could do for loops, all kinds of stuff. And uh, yeah, that sort of led into, led into the whole coding world of things. It, it was for... The code was for like, I think, um, turning little spinners on so somebody could spin chemistry stuff. I, I don't know how that name that works. <laughs> you got me. My my daughter's a chemistry major and she's, you know, she's already far beyond, you know, she comes home and tells me about things. And I'm like, I do the nod and smile. Like, kind of like when you explain like, you know, coding stuff to me, I nod and smile and pretend that I'm following along. I do the same thing with her chemistry uh, that she does. Uh, and so, so you were, you got a PhD in electrical engineering mm -hmm. and, and what did you study? Like, you know, how, and how does that turn into coding? Is that, a, is that normal for electrical engineering to go into coding? Uh, I don't, it's hard to say in general, cause there's like the computer engineering path, but I think it less so electrical engineering specific and more the PhD into coding, I think is becoming a thing. Um, just because at this point, a lot of, a lot of research work involves data and collecting data. And it's at such a scale that you kind of need, you end up learning to write code in some hacky way just to kind of be able to process what you're doing. And so that, that seems like a, yeah, that, that seems like a thing that, but to be fair, nobody else is really doing that at my PhD program. Uh, everyone else is kind of doing the more traditional be a professor in electrical engineering route or work at like a battery company or something like that. But you did work on, on grids, right? Like you were doing electrical engineering of like, uh, I think demand response. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So we were, my actual dissertation was on simulating the simulating grids in, in central America, um, which involved writing some code and, stuff um you know trying to see if if different countries if they work together more they could use more of their renewable generation um but the actual fun stuff we were doing during that time was uh some demand response programs that we were we kind of piloted in in managua nicaragua and that was cool that was some just from a coding perspective uh, it was build everything to be able to remotely control somebody's refrigerator which is terrifying but also interesting from a from a technical perspective. It's it sounds like um, the IR an IRB board uh, worst nightmare. Did you get did you have to go through like institutional review like to get approval for this? Did they say like how are you going to make sure people's food isn't ruined? Uh, we definitely did IRB for the survey part of it, um, and <laughs> of um, course, don't ask them the wrong questions, but. Their meat, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, we, w w something that was really important to us was we were trying, we were trying our best to, to look at it from a, at least a data equity perspective. So when we were doing work with people, we like purposely, we even actually evolved into doing more and more of telling them about their consumption and helping them sort of reduce energy, get, you know, uh, giving them easy access to like, CFLs and things like that at the time. And that was something we kind of learned throughout the process was like, 
if we're going to be extracting this data and this value from them, we need to make sure to find some way to give it back. Yeah, for sure. And so, and so did you learn demand response? Um, did you learn how to quantify the impacts of that demand response at that time? Is that what your first introduction to, or are you guys just kind of making stuff up at that point? The, my, my research partner at the time was doing more of the sort of statistics around it. So I was, I was learning it, but it, my role was more just like, uh, was more around collecting the data, sending those signals, um, debugging the actual physical codes, but sticking my hand in freezers and pulling out computers that were, you know, would be stuck to a bunch of juice or something like that. So I, but later on, um, it, you know, ironically, got more and more into doing that sort of calculation myself. Or uh, maybe not ironically, but maybe it was just fate. You were destined Steve, to to be doing this, this, you know, from maybe from a very early age. It, it could be. I, I don't think I ever, I, I think there was, yeah, it must be. There wasn't an explicit, like, I want to be an environmentalist explicitly and have my career be in climate. Um, but it was a broader, I like technology. I like, I learned to like coding. I liked, uh, I like math. I liked electrical engineering. And then I got into sort of the um, broader sustainability space and social uh, entrepreneurship space. And then like, a little bit kind of like push towards the environmental side of that just because of the, the electrical engineering background and, and that sort of stuff. And so I, I try my best in general life. I would try to try to spread out my, my work uh, across environmental and also like criminal justice and housing justice and other sort of tech. But I, yeah, I, maybe it's fate and maybe it's coincidence of, or maybe that, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because your dad does a lot of this type of work too, right? That is true. Yeah. So that may, there's, there's maybe something hereditary about it. Um, yeah. My dad worked uh, at the EPA for, I think, about 30 years. Um, he recently retired uh, doing uh, grants, filling grants for states uh, on their non-point source pollution uh, proposals that they had. And Kelly, I think your, your uh, dad had a... Um, has a background in this this type of work too, right? Yeah, um, he is the vice president of ASHRAE, so in the, in the building codes and standards world. Um, I used to call him the the architecture police as an architect, but yeah, grown to grown to appreciate that world more and more as I become more seasoned in the energy world. Um, yeah, there must be something about the paving paths for younger generations and being close close to it. Since our parents are basically the only listeners of our podcast at this point, we yeah. should give a shout out to our parents for raising us right and teaching us how to care about these things. Yes, huge shout out, Dad, who yeah, I know Dad. will be listening to this. Mom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and Mom. Totally. Yeah. And, and, I would, and I think, you know, we know one, one thing about Steve and his, um, you know, penchant for board games. But one game in particular, which totally gives away, you know, his, you know, what he what he really cares about. This game is called is it called Power Grid? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a board game called Power Grid, where people get to simulate being a utility operator, and 
there's some really cool stuff in it. Although like, I I feel like it's one of those things where similar to, I imagine like, I don't know, some real estate mogul playing Monopoly or something like that, where you like play it and you're like, there's like, we could tweak those rules and those rules, like to make it a little bit more realistic. Like, you know, like maybe utilities have to set clean energy goals. So they have to buy wind like later in the game or something like that. You know, the, I've, I've, I've semi-seriously thought about writing an updated rules to, to the game, but. You know, when I was a kid, a kid, I made up my own baseball card, simulated baseball game rules uh, with like dice, rolling dice. And it would, you know, like you, based on the stats of your players, you would get, you know, like certain outcomes based on the dice roll. And, and I think there's something kind of like, you know, you, you you start thinking about the world in that way. And I think it kind of like, you know, as we roll out our, you know, market for carbon-free energy, how do we, you know, create, um, you know, carbon offsets from decarbonizing buildings? In some ways, it's a lot of that same, like, rule structure. Like, how do you design the best sorts of, you know, rules to generate the types of outcomes that you're looking for? And um, I yeah. find it pretty, pretty satisfying. Are you saying that we should try to come just create a watt carbon power grid version that incorporates like a carbon accounting I layer? Think so. I think just, so. Just that's, pivot that's to a board saying. game company. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, great. It's a, it's a secondary revenue source. We're going to have t-shirts and board games and you know, it's, it's going to be awesome. Nice. We're going to have fantasy, like fantasy baseball, <laughs> but for utilities. Yep. Yes. There you so go. I'm draft like PG&E in the first round, you know, and like if they go bankrupt, though, you're definitely uh, <laughs> as season free. They're a risky one there. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is this is a plan. Kelly, new plan. We're taking this. To the, if our if our in, new investors are listening to this, uh, don't worry, we have it all under control. Uh, but this is brilliant. <laughs> Um, what Kelly, what have you learned? You've been working with Steve for about a month and a half now, almost two months. Um, what's the most, what's the most interesting thing you've learned from Steve in that time period? I mean, the board game fascination is, is pretty interesting. And I just like lovingly called him a nerd. Um, sorry. I, that was out of affection, not out of bullying. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, this is pretty sincere and, and maybe not not techie or anyway, but I think you guys were chatting a lot about coding and the, you know the origin story behind software engineering. And I think it's probably also really important to know that Steve has such a huge heart. And I mean, that's what he got at to the, what motivates him to do um, you know this kind of social work. And I've been really impressed by a lot of like his work with our like internal culture and just being really intentional about um, yeah, w the way people interact and setting up really good parameters and structure for that. Um, but I'd love to hear more about your work in Kenya, Steve. I think that's a really good um, kind of story. It tells a little bit about both your kind of that background in tech and, and also this kind of socially motivated and minded part of your life. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll set the stage with how, where, how I ended up in, in Kenya, um, with, um, it was, it actually is an extension of that lab view story we talked about earlier. So, 
uh, I learned about LabVIEW stuff. Fast forward a bit. I learned about a class um, led by this uh, professor, Kanjan Mehta, who had... Um, who was connected to a biomedical engineering class that would make cheap medical devices and attach them to a computer in an attempt to, to create sort of a telemedicine system um, in Nyeri, Kenya. Uh, and he also had a few other projects like this, like affordable greenhouses and um, anaerobic digesters and these different kind of mini projects going on. But uh, a friend of mine was in that LabVIEW uh, um, and also that those devices were using LabVIEW in order to sort of work. And so that my roommate was in that class and told me to talk to Kanjan. So I was like, I want to figure out a way to use this LabVIEW stuff. And I kind of signed up to be sort of the broader connect all the pieces LabVIEW person. And so I, I became sort of the central hub of, of building the, the actual app, I guess you'd call it, where the, somebody could go and click on the devices and like enter in all the data and everything like that. Um, and that involved going to Kenya for three weeks where we sort of trialed that out. And that first time was um, we went to, it was paired with a Children and Youth Empowerment Center um, in Neri, where uh, a lot of different other really cool stuff was going on. Um, and we kind of had a few days of a sort of pilot uh, healthcare or pilot program where people could come from the community and get basic, uh, basic information, blood pressure, BMI, um, pulse oximetry, a few other things. And then we had uh, doctors from Hershey who would also see them um, as sort of another incentive for people to come. And and that, I loved being there. I loved the fact that I found a way for tech to actually like seem like it was helping with something. I was pretty bought in on this social entrepreneurial scale angle of work where, um, where you can build something that provides, you know, as an income generating activity, it can maybe provide revenue and scale into, in bigger ways and solve bigger problems. And so I got super excited that I was like, hey, Kanjan, how do I get back to Kenya and keep working on this? I graduated and then I went to, uh, I told him all that. I got a job for like of my first full-time job, but then I left it after three months because I was like, I'm going to going back to Kenya in the spring. Um, and then me and my friend went there for five months to try to sort of take this telemedicine idea to the next level. And that was really interesting because it involved us uh, really on our own sort of, there wasn't any professors there or anybody else there um, working with community members, working with community health workers, trying to figure out how to actually have this sort of telemedicine triage system run what aspects of it were just made for the concept of sounding cool in, in conferences in the past and what aspects of it actually were necessary. And I think one of the biggest things we learned, I, I went back to Kenya three months, three months, like over the course of a couple of years, um, managed to convince my master's of sustainability, sustainable engineering program to pay me to go there so that I could also research tomato farming. Um, and I, uh, but anyway, this telemedicine system started as this like complex lab view based, blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And by the end of it, what we found was a, we found a place who would print receipt books that just had like a line for BMI and blood pressure. We had community health workers with a backpack and a blood pressure cuff, and they would just walk around town, uh, no telemedicine aspect or anything, um, and sort of just give people basic numbers. And then if people had high blood pressure, or, or they could, you know, they triage them to tell them to go to the hospital. Um, and they charged like 
I think like 25 cents or something for it. And that ended up lasting for like at least a handful of years after we left. I mean, it was small. There was only three or four community health workers doing it, but at least like we were pretty happy with ourselves that something had at least like sustained in like the most true definition of what sustainability is right for something to be able to sustain itself. And, and so that, that was, there was a lot of learnings and a lot of different things that stories and stuff like that through that. But that was the big thing was like narrow into the thing that actually can sustain itself and actually minimizes, you know, negative externalities and, um, you know, try to get rid of a lot of the fluff. That's so awesome. As, as you think about, you know, now you're kind of maturing in your career, you're now leading some of our hiring efforts. Um, when you look at job applicants, you know, do you think about, you know, obviously they need to know how to code for a software engineer and, yeah. um, there's probably some other, you know, characteristics that matter. They're able to articulate, you know, what they want to do, but do you think about having, you know, the value of having experiences like that for a job applicant? Does that impress you or does that change how you look at somebody if they've, you know, been able to like point to some of those experiences and how they've, you know, themselves have been through kind of a similar journey? Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, we're deep in the hiring process right now. Um, so if you're, if you are hearing this and you want to apply, please do. Um, the, the, it's tough doing that at the resume level because it's hard to know whether some people have had experiences that kind of aren't within their job focus of that. Um, but definitely when, when things are, you know, big enough that they are, do, do show up and that, that there are, I definitely trend towards trending towards people who feel like they've kind of had to figure out a bunch of messy things together, or maybe they've gone through, um, a different, you know, a previous iteration of, of working, um, some, in some totally different, uh, aspect that always feels like, like there's a better chance that they'll be more well-rounded when it comes to kind of working on, working on things. You know, there's, like you said, a technical minimum really, but yeah, it's, it's a struggle to like, whether you want the technical maximum or you want, uh, somebody that also has these other qualities of high emotional intelligence and, and, um, you know, lots of these different diverse experiences that can help, help make the whole team better. We're, we're just about out of time here. Kelly and I both have one final question for you. I'll start and then let her ask the last one. What's your, what's your biggest, what's your guiltiest pleasure in life? Guiltiest pleasure in life. I Can you turn prob- my mic on so you could hear me giggling at my face? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, I guess just based on how much time it takes up, I must, I would have to say RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. Just, uh, you know, I don't feel that guilty about it, though, is the reason why I hesitated. Um, right. uh, proudest, maybe mildly guilty pleasure just on how much time it takes up in our lives. But I have two rapid fire questions. Yeah. First ever concert. Weird Al. Nice. First ever and the person I've seen the most in concert. Nice. Consistent. Keep. Yeah. Um, also, this is like a, a asking for a friend. Um, are all humans going to be replaced by AI? <laughs> Chat AI. 
Jetta, <laughs> no. I think this, like, these things are just tools and they're going to get used. People are going to use them to abuse power and people are going to use them to fight power is the quick answer on it. That's a good quick answer. That was a big question for a rapid fire question. So I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> are we all doomed? Steve? Are we yeah. all doomed? We we're, we are all doomed, but it's our own fault. It's not technology's fault, so, but technology can be used to accelerate that doom, you know. Also, uh, to save us from ourselves. So yes. hopefully we can uh, harness harness these tools for good. Well, Steve, it's it's been great to have you on and, and share some of your story with us. Um, we we uh, obviously love, you know, having you as part of the team and uh, Watt Carbon wouldn't be where it is today without your uh, continued uh enthusiasm and, and vision of your own right and, um, and you know, helping everybody else be better at their job at the same time. So um, thank you. And I'll let you get back to interviewing all of the candidates that are, uh, but, but if you want to come, if you want to come be an engineer with, with, with Steve and some other great engineers, uh, go check out our, our hiring page. We're, we're excited to build, build out our team and, and see if we can scale decarbonization of our energy systems. Kelly, you got to go get some, you know, go back to bed. Thanks for <laughs> uh, toughing it out here. Um, and we will be back in, I don't know, a week or two with another member of the team that we can convince to come on the on the cast with us and, and talk about themselves. So thank you both. And uh, everybody have a great day. See ya. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.